When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, that should matter to everyone. Who holds the president responsible if he or she does something wrong? And the idea that the answer is no one is so scary to me. Tax returns or no tax returns before Election Day or not. That is a question we need a strong, not so fast, buddy. And I think that we got that from the court. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit politics. We're excited to be back with you today as we wrap up another Supreme Court term. Our Patreon page in particular has become just Supreme Court Central as Beth has begun summarizing all the cases. And we thought we would talk through a few of the big cases. The Trump tax return cases are in everyone's minds as we're sitting here recording and talk about just the court in general and what this term means for the future of the court. 
Before we dive into my favorite subject, as well as the subject that is causing me the greatest anxiety, because we're going to touch on school at the end of this episode, we want to remind you that our extra credit book club is so much fun. You can go to the Wild Geese Bookshop, which is a small locally owned bookstore in Indiana run by one of our favorite people, Tiffany, and sign up to receive our book subscription. Once a quarter, Sarah and I personally pick some books. Tiffany packages them up beautifully with some other fun little surprises like this amazing heel balm this month. Mm -hmm. And you can read the books that are influencing our thinking. You can join some discussion on Facebook about them and Goodreads. It's just an excellent way for us to all be lifelong learners together. I mean, as we have this conversation about the Supreme Court, believe we're going to reference the Federalist Papers, which is an instrumental part of our summer series coming up at the end of this month, How to Be a Citizen, and included in the Extra Credit Book Club subscription this quarter. And what's really cool is we've built this into our Patreon. So if you are a $50 supporter or a $100 executive producer, then you get the Extra Credit Book Club subscription as part of your benefits of being a patron. So thank you to everyone who is doing that. Thank you to everyone who's involved in the book club and who is learning right along with us. And all the links for that will be in the show notes. And you don't have to subscribe to the Extra Credit Book Club subscription to participate in the book club. We have groups on Goodreads and Facebook where we talk about all the books we've selected and have conversations. And just like Beth said, keeping that learning process going. Well, I have been reading a lot lately, but not necessarily books, because <laughs> the Supreme Court has been so busy this term. And can I just do a little moment of personal venting before we get into what's really important here? I mean, that's usually my shtick, but go for it. Thank you. <laughs> we have a court right now with a couple of justices who just believe that they must write their own opinions on every single case. Looking Ugh. at you, Brett Kavanaugh. Shh. And it's exhausting. Okay. And I have read so many words and there are so many more words to read. We're going to talk about the big decisions from today. But as we sit down to record, they have been published for exactly one hour. I did refresh fast enough this time to get them downloaded before the court's website crashed. So I've learned something <laughs> every Monday and Thursday. But man, so many words from the Supreme Court. And I love the Supreme Court. I'm just saying maybe you don't need to write your own opinion every time. Have you not learned over the course of this term that you probably could skip his concurrences? Come on. Or his dissents, because they're usually just, I agree with someone else, but I'm just here to say it on my own. Well, let me just give you permission to skip that. And let me just tell Brett Kavanaugh, meet me at the mic. Okay, friend, I know you think that all these words are going to undo your perceived reputational damage from the confirmation hearing, but it's the opposite. Like, it's the opposite. You should keep your head down and keep your mouth shut. It's sort of like the advice Hillary Clinton got when she came to the Senate. Like, prove it by being a member of the court. Prove that you're not this screaming egomaniac that you sort of came off as during the confirmation hearings and just do the work. And somehow he got the interpretation that doing the work is writing all the words. And that's not the case. Even with all those dynamics, I will tell you that Brett Kavanaugh is not currently my least favorite justice to read. <laughs> is it Alito? That Ooh, title belongs to Justice Alito. Correct. Yeah, he's the worst. 
He's the worst. So pedantic. He just is. He is. I'm sorry. It's true. Okay. Well, we've lost everyone now in these weeds of the Supreme Court. So let's talk about the Trump tax return cases. There were two separate cases in front of the court. One of them involved a criminal subpoena from the state of New York as it continues its investigation into possible violations of business law by multiple individuals and entities. The second case was about the House of Representatives subpoena of the president's financial records. In both cases, Mazars, the entity that holds those financial records and does the president's financial work for him, said, not us, not it. We don't have an opinion here. This is between you all. Let us know what we're supposed to do. So in the criminal case, the New York case, we have the court with an opinion by Justice Roberts saying very firmly, you are not wholly exempt as the president of the United States from criminal subpoenas, whether they come from federal prosecutors or state prosecutors. I mean, it was a bold argument the president was making in this case. I mean, I think in one of the oral arguments, not before the Supreme Court, but I think one of the lower courts, one of his attorneys argued, like, if he committed a murder, they would have to wait until the end of his term to investigate and prosecute the murder. That's bananas. Absolute immunity is what they said the whole time. We've heard that phrase from him about all kinds of things, right? Absolute immunity. And Justice Roberts said no. And I really love that he began the opinion by talking about Aaron Burr, sir, and the trial of Burr for treason. I mean, he really, he's just trying, he's pulling out all the stops to get the Supreme Court back in favor with everyone, including like, again, triggering everybody's Hamilton lyrics reflex. There are so many pop culture references in the decisions this term. Justice Kagan does this a lot, too. And I think what you see with both Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan doing things like that is is this love of the institution and this desire for everyone else to love the institution again, too. You know, you don't you don't drop a Veep reference in an opinion as a Supreme Court justice casually. That is someone saying, come in with me. There's something really good here, something worth being interested in. So anyway, Justice Roberts tells us no absolute immunity, no heightened standard. President Trump is just a citizen for purpose of receiving and responding to a criminal subpoena, which also means that just like any other citizen, he can raise in state court all kinds of objections to the subpoena. But he has to do that. He doesn't just get to say, nope, I'm the president, go away. That's a really significant decision. Roberts wrote the majority. He was joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg. And then there were concurrences from Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. So they agreed with the vote, but for slightly different reasoning. Then you have Thomas and Alito dissenting. They agreed with the president that he is immune from this kind of subpoena. Here's the thing. I think this case and the other case has become all about Trump's tax records. And I think that is really important. And I think we should see those tax records before Election Day, which seems unlikely at this point. But I also think that there is a really important issue at play here. And not just sort of an elite argument or a philosophical argument about our institutions, although I think that is there and I think it's really important. I mean, I think that this is something 
I know is a conversation I'm having in I'm having with my relatives, which is if nobody that's ever had so much as a liberal thought, the bureaucracy, the quote unquote deep state, any court, the media, if none of those people are trustworthy, then who can hold this man responsible? And, you know, I think that sometimes the way he tweets about the media can sort of feel like just a, a PR stunt, but it's not. They're making an argument that the president, no one can hold the president responsible. And that's a big deal to everybody, whether or not you practice before the Supreme Court or teach political science. I mean, that should matter to everyone. Who holds the president responsible if he or she does something wrong. And the idea that the answer is no one is so scary to me. And, you know, tax returns or no tax returns before Election Day or not, that is a question we need a strong, not so fast, buddy. And I think that we got that from the court. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beet treat, but wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat. 
wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in japan they like a loose flowy look over there to battle the heat i will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit I think if you ask the average person on the street in a context that is independent of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. if the president is suspected to have committed a crime, should the president be investigated? The person would say, of course. I think we have gotten to this so silly place where people defending Donald Trump as a human, not thinking about the office of the presidency, believe that the intention on the part of anybody who didn't vote for him or anybody who did vote for him and subsequently changed their mind, that their intention is so toxic that it means who cares about all of the other standards? The only thing that matters is that I don't trust where this person's coming from. Well, here's our first Federalist Papers reference. Our whole government is built on the premise that we should not trust where anybody's coming from. We have every rule and standard in place designed with the assumption that human beings are self-interested and ambitious and untrustworthy. And that is why they need structure and rules. Well, and just the group of people that you can't trust just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as is defined by Donald Trump or William Barr. You know what I mean? Like, who's left? (laughs) Who is left to say, you can't do that, that's wrong? And in that way, you know, we had a conversation with some um, scholars from Democracy Works that you'll hear in our summer series about the court. And they said, everything points to Justice Roberts as thinking so much about how to rehabilitate the court post-Bush versus Gore. That what he wants more than anything else is to restore trust and confidence in this institution. And I think this pair of decisions, as unsatisfying as they are to people who want those tax returns yesterday, and I am among those people, by the way, Mm -hmm. the court is saying, here is the standard that should govern. Now go back through the process using that appropriate standard. Which is really what they're supposed to do, is comment on the process, not make decisions. I know that that feels weird. It feels like the Supreme Court ought to have the final say, meaning what's the outcome. But the Supreme Court has the final say about what the law is, 
appellate courts always defer to lower courts to say what the facts are and how the law is applied to the facts is best left in the lower courts if that's possible because they're closest to it. So the court here says he's not absolutely immune and he should go back through this process and make whatever normal citizen arguments he's going to make about the subpoena. And courts will decide how they decide under those normal citizen arguments. That's why the trust was lost in Bush v. Gore, because they didn't do that. They interfered in the outcome. That's why all the trust in the institution was shredded to the point that they even said at the end of the decision, hey, by the way, this doesn't apply anywhere else, which is a real red flag if you're the Supreme Court. And I think that's what he is trying to rebuild is that moment they took where they messed with the outcome was hugely detrimental. And so every time I think he gets the chance, and I'm not saying it's just John Roberts, but anytime I think the court gets the chance to say, you want a real easy outcome, a political outcome, mm-mm, that's not what we do here. And I think they do that with the House case as well, when you have an even bigger issue of separation of powers between Congress asking for subpoenas on his financial records and the president saying, absolutely not, never, and the Supreme Court being asked to get involved. And so Chief Justice Roberts wrote that opinion, too. And I think let's reflect for a second on the fact that the Chief Justice of the court wrote both of these opinions himself. Seven, two decisions. Seven, two decisions. I mean, it's like the last five have been seven, two, right, that have come out. I think that's important, too. Released on the last day of releasing Mm -hmm. decisions for the term. The House decision, and which I have only read very quickly and need to go back and spend time with, agonizes over what to do when you have this kind of conflict between two co-equal branches of government and deliberates on how you resolve that conflict and says, basically, here's what we've got right now. Work on this lower courts. We could see this decision come back up to the Supreme Court again several times over, I think. And I think that's appropriate because it's really hard. I think it's appropriate to think through what is owed by the president to Congress and how should a court assess a conflict there. And if you want to be mad at somebody about this, the person to be mad at is the president. Because think Mm -hmm. about what all this drama is sourced from. All of this drama is sourced from the president failing to do what almost every person who's ever sought that office has done in their campaigns. So if you think that the court didn't go far enough here, or if you think the court went too far, direct your anger at the person who is litigating the hell out of doing something that is customary, even for people who, like, run for governor in some states. Mm -hmm. It's just, it is mind-blowing that we ask the Supreme Court to hold all of this stuff, and then we all decide to direct our emotion at the court about it instead of the person who could have just said, okay, fine, here are my tax returns. What's in those tax returns that's worth bringing three branches of government into conflict with one another? Oh, well, we're going to find out. I mean, we're not going to find out before the election, I don't think. But these decisions are not a long-term 
quote unquote win for Donald Trump and him trying to protect whatever the heck it is. He's so terrified of everybody finding out in his financial records. Like, I think it will come out eventually. So, Sarah, you were commenting on the fact that these are seven two decisions. And I think that is really important. You want to say more about that? Well, that's not just that. I mean, there were seven two decisions in the religious freedom laws with regards to contraception, health care coverage under the Affordable Care Act and employment discrimination in religious institutions. And, you know, I don't really think that John Roberts walked in the room and was like, listen, y'all, <laughs> we're not going to be doing any more 5-4. Because 5-4, the second people see, and listen, I'm guilty of this too. What's the first thing I check for? The breakdown. Because if it's 5-4 conservative to liberal justices, then I think this is a political decision. It's just hard not to think that way. Now, you can read them, and, you know, I think that that's why your summaries are so valuable because, you know, reading them and breaking them down, Supreme Court decisions are so very rarely summed up neatly in a in a phone notification. But for better or for worse, I think that is the mental game we all play when they come out. And when they're not like that and you see names in the majority like RBG or Sotomayor, names you know and respect and like and trust. Maybe that's really what it's about. I don't know if it's just partisanship, but it's trust. Well, I don't know. I think there's less trust on the conservative side because they're so, so excited and ready and willing to turn on John Roberts at this point. But And Justice Gorsuch, too. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think that getting decisions that don't break down that way, if you are trying to build trust back up, in the institution and show that this isn't just a simple who appointed you, how do you vote, end of story situation is, I think it's, you know, it's good. It's beneficial for the court. No doubt about it. What I wish for every citizen of the United States to understand about the court is that every person there is playing a super long game because their lifetime appointments, they understand what their place in history is going to look like. Well, now, wait, I'm going to time out real quick on that. I think Kavanaugh and his infinite decisions is too consumed with the short term is, in fact, not playing a long game. But everybody else I'll give you. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair, especially because Kavanaugh several times this term has agreed with the Alito Thomas kind of position, but not liked their tone. You know, and so it's written separately to say, I would have said it differently. Well, friend, you missed your opportunity to say things differently. Can I just put that on the record? You had a chance, a real opportunity to say things differently, and you missed it. Just sorry. I'm going to stop dunking on him, but it's just hard. I don't need you to do that. I think that Kagan and Breyer are especially, Kagan, Breyer, Gorsuch, and Roberts are the most interesting people on the court right now. Because the four of them are doing this dance, and I would love to be a fly on the wall to understand how articulated or unarticulated this dance is. But the four of them are doing this dance where they are really trying to cross. Like, do they have a group text? Yeah. (laughs) I doubt they do. Something in me says no. But what if they did? But what if they did? Let's write that fan fiction, Beth. I mean, don't tempt me. So (laughs) I think those four are trying so hard to cross that ideological split as often as possible Mm -hmm. so that the other two will come with them when it really matters. And that's why you see in the contraception cases, you see Kagan and Breyer concurring and saying, 
I don't get there the same way the majority does, but I get there as to what we're saying today. And a lot of that comes down to the way the question is presented to the court. You know, Mm -hmm. the Little Sisters of the Poor case, the question is really about the power of the Department of Health and Human Services to make decisions about the Affordable Care Act. And in other contexts, people who are very angry about this decision would be adamantly pressing for the power of the Department of Health and Human Services to make regulations to implement the Affordable Care Act, right? Mm -hmm. So the justices, even though there are transparent examples of their personal, political, and philosophical decisions, for example, Justice Thomas writing the majority opinion in that case in favor of the department's power when most of the time he says, you know, everything executive branch agencies do is bullshit and most of them shouldn't exist. So that there is that transparent personal piece. But where you have a Kagan and Breyer going forward, you know, they see that in other contexts, they're really advocating for deference to executive branch agencies. So it's just an interesting interplay, again, cannot be captured by the alert that comes to your phone. You know, part of what always bugs me about Clarence Thomas and Alito and even Kavanaugh, I just, there's this, well, I'm right. And I'm just going to stand here and scream about how right I am. There's no You know, they see that it's like they see themselves just as a Supreme Court justice and not a member of the Supreme Court. You know what I mean? Like instead of being a part of the whole and realizing that that means engaging with your fellow justices, engaging with that sort of long term outlook and strategy, it's just uh, I'm just going to dig my heels in the ground and not move. I really loved a piece of Kagan's concurrence in the Little Sisters case where she says You know, everybody agrees that the Department of Health and Human Services can decide what types of preventive care are mandatory and what types of preventive care are not. Everybody agrees on that. The question here is really, once they decide something's mandatory, can they say it's mandatory for only certain people? And that other people are exempt? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. And she says, here... The only thing the majority and the dissent have in common is their certainty about their rightness. Mm. And then she says, if I squint at the statute, sometimes I'm convinced in one direction and sometimes the other. I don't think it's that clear. And this is what I think the district courts have to grapple with. So the humility that she brought to her concurrence Mm -hmm. there, again, feels to me like plugging into that sense of the court as a collective body. And maybe an example to set for other justices and how they analyze some of these harder cases, especially in the cases that are social lightning rods. Listen, this is a hard lesson for me to learn in my own life (laughs) and had to learn through this podcast. Like you just cannot underestimate how much trust can be built when you say, I don't think it's clear. I always trust an opinion more when they say. Not so simple. I don't think it's that easy. When they when they roll in and are like, please, this is so easy. Oh, man, that bugs me. And I trust like everything out of it after that. So the dynamics of the individual justices in this current court are fascinating to me. And I could do nothing in my life but talk about them. I think the more important 
dynamic for us to consider as citizens is the interplay of the court with Congress and the president. What is apparent to me over this term is that we have asked the court to solve almost every pressing problem we have as a society right now. Immigration, abortion, what to do about Donald Trump and his disregard for the law, how to interpret discriminatory laws against the LGBTQ community. Like all of the things that we're fighting about in our living rooms, we have expected the Supreme Court to resolve for us. And it cannot do that. Mm -hmm. It was not designed to do that. Well, and I do really think there's brilliance in the way, particularly Roberts and Kagan and that sort of crew you're talking about say, we are going to stay focused on the government and particularly our branch of it and not the country. I think if you don't have a long history or, you know, have by requirement of your education spent some time pondering the Supreme Court, the way they talk sometimes of like, take it up with Congress, this is not our job, can feel callous. Because it feels like America is, DACA recipients are suffering. What do you mean it's not your job? And I get that. I get it. But it's back to that long game. And I think if you're Kagan or you're Gorsuch or you're Roberts or you're Breyer or really any of them, then what you're saying is you you have to trust me. Like I have to stay focused on my piece of this machinery or the whole thing breaks down. Like I cannot, I cannot lose sight of my small cog because if I do, if I do, then the whole thing goes off the road rails and I might solve DACA or I might save this particular group. But then I lose all ability to allow our government to deal with the next crisis. You know, like and I and I don't envy them. I think that's very difficult. But back to the Federalist Papers. You know, the way this puzzle is put together is not, well, we can let the executive consume so much power and Congress take a pass and just depend on the Supreme Court to save us at every turn. It's just not under any interpretation how it was written. I mean, you'll hear in our civic series that they were worried nobody would want to be a Supreme Court justice. That's why they made it a lifetime appointment. Because it was such a, I mean, not powerless gig, but constrained compared to everything constrained else. Constrained piece of this, of this government. And them expanding their power, which they've undoubtedly done. I mean, there's no argument that the Supreme Court has expanded beyond its role as originally um, written in the Constitution, as has every branch, because our country got bigger and expanded and the federal government got bigger and expanded. But that expansion is never going to, quote unquote, fix the issues in the executive and the legislative branches. 
We have to demand that. All they can just do is keep saying, do your job, do your job, do your job. But the power of the congressional branch and the power of the executive branch doesn't come from the Supreme Court. It comes from the people. And so we have to demand better outcomes from those branches instead of constantly kicking it to the Supreme Court and demanding the policy outcomes we want. You know, Sarah, I so respect everything you just said. And the other thing that I'm thinking about when you say the court is focused on its piece of the government instead of the country is a conversation I had with a really good friend of mine who, by the way, thinks that I am bananas for caring at all what is an occurring, a concurring or dissenting opinion. <laughs> He's like, why do you enjoy this? Um, but his perspective, which I also agree with, is that in some ways the court is entirely focused on the country because it tends to end up right where most people would if presented with these questions in the abstract. Hmm. So you think about the DACA decision. The legal analysis there is thin, in my opinion. I agree with the result, and I think the analysis is thin. I agree so much with the result that I cried when I got it. <laughs> and and also, I really think that was the court making an attempt to answer this question the way the majority of Americans would have. I think that's the transgender case, where I think the analysis is much better. Uh, but I also think, I mean, we talked about this. Most people thought it was already illegal to discriminate based on someone being LGBTQ. I think in these religious freedom cases, if you ask the average person on the street, should contraception be covered by insurance plans, they would say yes. Should they be covered by insurance plans if the people who provide those plans really strongly object based on their religion? I think, and people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but I think the majority of people in the abstract presented with that question would say no. And I just think the court finds a way to get there, that justices tend to move to a place that really reflects the country. That is the that is the screaming, raging argument from Alito this term, and sometimes from Gorsuch. We're avoiding the hard question because we know the public won't like it. That's absolutely what Gorsuch said in the abortion case out of Louisiana. We're avoiding the hard question. We're avoiding the hard legal analysis because we don't think the public likes it. So it feels like thinking about the country is part of that need to think just about their piece of the government. Well, I guess I would just say that, yes, and as you know, the sexy decisions are not the only decisions they put out. That there are so many decisions the court makes that you couldn't get the average American to make a call on because it would take you too long to explain what they're about. Right. You right. know what I mean? Like, I think that there is they're doing a lot more than this bubbling up in those notifications. And even when they're trying to get where the majority of America wants them to get. I think it's that, I don't think it's, let me twist the law to get to the policy. I think it's an acknowledgement of the ways in which the court's power has expanded over the years. That's why that originalist, you know, let's go back to the framers intent, always bothers me. You know that this branch wasn't supposed to be anywhere near as powerful. You can complain about Congress's expansion and the executive branch expansion all you want, but it's not the only branch that got expanded. And it feels like those decisions are more just of an acknowledgement of we're doing more than we were ever originally intended to do. 
than trying to meet America where it's at. I just think that, I mean, maybe that's two sides of the same coin. I also am not sure that the framers' intent was for the framers' intent to be controlling in this context, but we'll talk a lot more about that during our summer series. So consider that your nerdy teaser. (laughs) Next up, we will chat a little bit about the issue causing a ton of anxiety for, I think, every American, whether you have children or not, the flashpoint of school reopening. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. 
If it sounds like we are just swimming through the depths of political philosophy (laughs) and the role of our government, it's because we are in preparation of our summer series, How to Be a Citizen, because I think there's need for that right now. I think there is a real need and desire for deeper conversations about what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to do together as this community of citizens in the United States or in our states? And I think, honestly, another manifestation of this need for deeper conversation is right now surrounding whether or not school is going to be open in the fall, which has become quite the flashpoint, which is funny to me, Beth, because I don't know about you, uh, but since my children stopped going to school in March, it seemed like this was going to be an important question to answer. And I don't understand why our leaders in Congress have all of a sudden decided, man, I guess we better pay attention to this when it's going to happen in like a month or so. Well, I think the leaders in Congress are paying attention because the president has become so focused on it, because the president has just decided that the best way to keep his base organized and fired up is to speak to their current pain point. You know, school is everyone's current biggest pain point in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Maybe not biggest for everyone, but it is a huge pain point for everyone because school represents so many things. This is another institution where we've said public school be everything for everybody, be childcare, be education, be food security, be in some cases clothing security, be love and care that students don't get from home, be the people who can report on suspected child abuse and neglect, be it all. And so when we remove that while we simultaneously cut your funding, correct. While we neglect you in every way. So when we take that out of the picture and at the same time are demanding back to normal, everybody, back to work, (laughs) you know, get in the cubicle and churn out 40 hours or whatever it is, we're just lost. That's how we feel right now to me, just adrift in every way. I was sharing with Sarah before we started recording, I just can't sleep this week and nothing is particularly wrong, but everything is wrong. And I think that the school question is a big part of it, even though I know that my family will adjust to whatever happens. We will figure it out just like we did in March. But my family is uniquely situated to figure it out. And and we're in a very, very small group of people. Here is what bothers me about this whole thing. Like you said, you know, this has become such an area of focus because we are acknowledging that the economy cannot fully reopen until schools reopen. But neither of those things can happen until we can assure people of their safety. If Donald Trump did not learn that lesson from his rally in Tulsa, I don't know what will teach it to him. And just reopening to reopen only compounds the problem if you then have to close down, dial back, withdraw again. Schools and the safety of children are of such importance, but schools are not just filled with children. Schools are also filled with teachers and administrators who are and can be 
very at risk for exposure to coronavirus. So the question is not, should we, do we want to reopen schools? The question is, can we do it safely? And to do it safely requires a massive amount of money and time and energy. And the United States Senate has decided to, oh, I don't know, do nothing because they got some positive jobs reports about the economy and decided we're just going to see how things are going. Well, guess what, guys? Time's up. Like, we have to start making these calls soon. And their local decisions, they're going to look different. Whether or not school should be open is the first question of like 150 questions every school district is going to have to answer. And Congress, you know, House Democrats passed a bill with a massive amount of funding, still probably not enough. You know, people are estimating $200 billion to help schools do this properly, and their bill only contains $58 billion. But it's not like other places in the world haven't been able to do this with social distancing, with masks, with sanitation routines. But it takes money and resources and guidance, not us all sitting around saying, man, do we want schools to open up? Like, well, yeah, of course we do. But there's more to it than that. And just the idea that, like, well, we're just going to push for schools to be open and the CDC's guidelines were too tough. So we're going to tell them to go back to the table and make them easier as if that's going to, you know, make people feel less fearful, actually assure student and teacher safety or most importantly, produce money from the thin air so people can actually follow those guidelines is just it is so frustrating to me. Here's my perspective on this as a person who, to use the title of Mary Trump's book, which I have mixed feelings about, but I think the title is genius. Um, I know that I am too much and not enough in my sort of conservative philosophy for people. On schools, I am probably center right. As long as public schools are adequately funded, I am wholeheartedly in favor of what would go under the umbrella of school choice. The important caveat to me is that public schools are adequately funded, which they're not today, right? But putting those two things together, I feel really comfortable and good even about school choice. I also actually believe that a lot of local control in schooling is really important. I also think that there are real benefits to Common Core. So I have this weird plate of opinions about school that would annoy someone if we sat down to talk about it. And And I respect that. It is a thing that we should have diverse opinions about because schools have to serve so many different kids and families in so many different contexts and communities. You know, you can't divorce a school from the community in which it sits, in my opinion. And so I look at everything the president has been saying about this topic and what's coming out of this administration about this topic. And here's what makes me really mad. I would go with them on the idea that school should be pretty localized nine times out of 10. But why now would the federal government mandate what schools open in person versus go online when we know that there are areas of this country having dramatically different experiences with this virus? Why is local control not even more important in this context than it would be in any other? This is not curriculum. This is where the rubber really meets the road on what's happening in your community. Why on this topic are we using federal funding as a threat and perhaps uh, a stick 
to force schools to do what the federal government wants them to do when people who generally view schools the way I do have rejected that in every other context. It is such an it's another example of the complete abandonment of actual principle by this administration in service of nothing more than short-term electoral objectives. And I got to tell you, I think they're making the wrong gamble on this. I cannot imagine who outside of that very hard floor of support the president has feels good about the way he's talking about this. We saw in Kentucky the power of teachers and people who love and care about and interact with teachers to unseat even the party that we are predisposed by every metric as a state to support in our gubernatorial race. Matt Bevan lost that election because of the way he spoke about teachers. I am convinced of it. And to talk about reopening school and cutting funding if it doesn't happen exactly the way the president wants without concern for the health and safety of teachers and students, I just think the president is assessing the mood of the American public in a dramatically wrong way. I mean, I just think as far as his electoral strategy, he only has one. He used it last time. It worked. He's doubling down at this time. We'll see. He doesn't have different gears. (laughs) And I think that's, you know, part of probably what Mary Trump is going to argue in her book. Like there's only one gear. There's only one mode, attack. And in a crisis, you need more than attack. And that is what we're seeing. We did want to say we're not done with this conversation, uh, any stretch of the imagination. On Tuesday's show, we are sharing conversations with early childhood educators, with elementary school teachers, with college admissions officers. We sat down with people in these different areas from early education to public education to higher education to talk about how COVID has exposed problems that have been there all along. And we wanted to really have some depth because I think when we're talking about opening schools, I hope, I really, really hope that this conversation turns into more than how we open schools in the fall and becomes a conversation of how have we abandoned our education system And how can we revive it? And that's what we really hope to start engaging with on Tuesday's show. Thank you for being here with us and thinking about these questions. Thank you for considering how to be citizens to the point where we feel excited to bring you a whole series on that topic. And we'll be back with you on Tuesday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.